It is good to be with you, and I would ask if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. We are concluding our series this morning in the book of Malachi. We're in chapter 3, verse 6. Begin reading in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 3, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you again in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we praise you and thank you this morning that we have been able to remember your Son and his sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you that his blood shed on that cross is for us the redemption that we so desperately needed, that in his sacrifice all our sins were paid, that he brought to us life, his life, the resurrected life that he has in himself, that he gives freely to those who believe. Lord, we pray that as we are here in your word now this morning, that your spirit might guide us, that we might learn from you, and that your word would have application in our lives this morning. Father, we pray that we not be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. But Lord, we confess that in the hearing and in the doing, we are powerless in ourselves, that in the hearing, we need your grace, and in the doing, we need your grace. For otherwise, we are but powerless. We are sinners, Lord, and without you, without your help, without your love, without your grace in our lives, Lord, we are without hope. And so, Lord, we pray that you might fill us with your peace this morning, enable us to walk by faith and to hear what you'd have for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8 says, will a man rob God? Well, how about a woman? Two years ago, Newsweek reported that Taisha Smith to Joseph embezzled more than a half a million dollars from St. Paul's Baptist Church in Florence, New Jersey, and used the money to pay for her wedding, a car, and other personal expenses. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that Smith to Joseph took $561,000 from the church's coffers over a five-year period. As the financial secretary of the church, she allegedly opened up multiple bank accounts in its name and used the funds deposited there for her own benefit. The Burlington County prosecutor released a statement on the case that outlined the charges against Smith to Joseph. In it, he claims that the financial secretary cut checks to herself for both payroll and supply reimbursement from the church's bank accounts, along with using the accounts she had set up to make unauthorized online purchases. Subpoenaed documents revealed that she had spent large sums of money at a variety of retailers, $22,000 on Amazon, $266,000 to various parties on PayPal. In addition, prosecutors alleged that her wedding at the Marion, an upscale venue in Cinemason, was also funded by Invenzel's funds. Investigators discovered that Smith to Joseph had allegedly been forging bank statements to hide her theft from the church's administration. According to a probable cause statement obtained by the Burlington County Times, she left the church's account overdrawn 500 times in five years. Her job as a financial secretary was an unpaid volunteer post. St. Paul's Baptist Church pastor Fred Jackson told WABC, trust 
trust. That's all I can say. We as Christians like to believe we're trusting and we put our trust in other people and in God. And sometimes that trust is misplaced. Embezzling from churches is remarkably common crime. A 2017 article in Christianity Today reported that one in 10 Protestant churches have had funds embezzled. Since most church staff volunteers, so it's most staff church are church staff or volunteers, they are often not vetted to the degree that a salaried employee would be. Will a man rob God? G. Campbell Morgan made an observation, though, that there is a worse embezzlement than the one when you take the money from the church's coffers. That there's a worse profanity than what's heard on the streets of the inner city. That there's a worse sacrilege than those who uh, never serve God at all. It's the sacrilege, it's the profanity, it's the embezzlement of God's people who don't honor God the way he deserves. I mean, that kind of embezzlement that we just saw and read about, um, you know, we could say, oh, gosh, well, that's just awful. That's just terrible. And I'm sure that the people that Malachi was writing to would have had the same response. Because when God said, when a man robbed God, yet you say, how have we robbed you? How have we robbed you? As we've gone through this study of Malachi over the last three weeks, we've seen that there is a real danger of spiritual drift. That as the people of God here in Malachi's day, they had experienced revival. They had experienced the revival under Nehemiah. They had experienced the revival of the rebuilding of the temple. They had experienced the revival of the rebuilding of the city walls. They had seen God keep his promise to the people. And yet a short time later, a short time after that great outpouring of God's spirit and intervention on their behalf, they have gone adrift spiritually. The priesthood is up and running but it has become an external formal religion devoid of passion and emotion where the priests themselves complain about the quality of the sacrifices that are being offered to God and they don't do anything about it except complain. We've seen that there has been a a disease, as it were, spreading among God's people, where they no longer fear God, they no longer honor his name, and there is no faithfulness. There's no faithfulness to the covenant. There's no faithfulness to marriage. The people are spiritually, they're spiritually adrift. And now we come to the final exhortation, we come to the final invitation that God, through Malachi, his messenger, is sending to the people. And in it, we see that there is here for us an application. There's an application for us. As we look at our own lives, we consider the own dangers that we have of spiritual drift, of our own embezzlement, as it were, of God's, what is rightfully God's. And what we see here are three things in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. The first is that we see God's invitation to us to return. He says in verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. 
return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Return, return to God. We also see later on about the words that the people were saying in verse 13. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is there in keeping his charge that we've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. And not only do the doers of wickedness build up, but they also test God and escape. And then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. Not only are we invited to return, we are invited to recite what the Lord has done for us. To return, to recite, and then to remember. In chapter 4, verse 4, we read these words. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinance which I commanded him in Horeb. For all Israel, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Remember, remember the covenant. Remember the covenant of old. Return, recite, remember. You know what struck me about those three terms was not just how nice and easily they make for a sermon outline, but the fact is that that prefix re, you see, because the root word is turn. The, the root word is citation or to cite or to speak, to member, to remember, to recite, to return. Why? It's to do it again. The prefix in front of the word means to do it again. There had been a time when they had turned to the Lord, but now they need to return to the Lord. There had been a time when they had spoken something, but now they needed to say it again. There was something that they once had on their mind, but they had forgotten it, and they needed to remember it again. Return, recite, renew. Why does God start this with verse 6? I, the Lord, do not change. It's such a powerful foundation because when we are wandering, when we are adrift, when we are going our own way and we've walked away from the faith, we've walked away from the Lord, we've walked away from our devotion and we are then exhorted to return back to God, there is inevitably the question, what will we find when we go back? Right? What will we find when we go back? Like we think of the prodigal son, and we think of the parable of the prodigal son, and we think about the journey that he took, and how he came to his senses and said, I will return to my father. What did he expect to find when he got home? Well, I can tell you based on what he said that what he expected was not what he got. Because what he expected was a father who was distant, aloof, angry, ready to punish, 
who would need to be conjoled, who would need to be persuaded, who would need to be, as it were, humiliated from the offense that he had given, rightfully so. The son understood that he had sinned against God and against him, and that he was going to not be worthy to be called a son anymore, but that he could just be the servant. Can I just be your slave? What was he expecting when he returned? And for each of us, when we think about our walk with the Lord, we think about how we have journeyed in our walk with the Lord. What do we expect when we return to him? What do we hope to find? I am the Lord. I do not change. So where you were before you left God, before you wandered, before you drifted, where you were with God at that moment in time, when you left, when you changed, when you departed, the same God that he was at that moment when you started walking away, He's the same God when you return. And the joys and the comforts and the hopes and the dreams that you had with him, he hasn't changed. We've changed, but he hasn't. I am the Lord. I do not change. So that in and of itself provides us with this great exhortation to return. We as Christians, if you're here and you're thinking about your walk with the Lord, you know there have been times in your life when you have drifted. And what has kept you back from returning has been some kind of unconscious fear of what you would find when you returned. What can I expect from God when I come back to him? I am the Lord. I do not change. One commentator makes this observation with respect to God's essence, attributes, moral character, and determination to punish sin and reward goodness. There can be no variation or inconsistency. With regard to these characteristics, there is absolute and unconditional dependability. It's kind of interesting, actually, if you think about this, right? Because when you look at this passage and you think about what God is saying to them, there's almost like a play on words. Like God is saying, I am the Lord. I do not change. Even though you're still the children of Jacob. Right? He uses that phrase, the children of Jacob. He doesn't call them the children of Israel. He calls them the children. Why? Because Jacob was the trickster. Jacob was the deceiver. Jacob was the carnal, fleshly man. And God is saying, you're still like your father, Jacob. And just as I'm consistent, you are consistent. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. I don't change. You don't change. I'm still faithful. You're as unfaithful as you've always been. Return to me. You know, we sometimes, oh God, I fall down and I make the same mistake over and over and over again. How can I come back to you again? Well, You've done this from the beginning. (laughs) There's nothing new here. I am the Lord. I do not change. 
return to me. Return to me. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statues, have not kept them. Return to me. Hundreds of years earlier, Hezekiah issued the same invitation. He said to the people, he said, the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Brothers and sisters, if you're feeling adrift, if you feel the corruption of sin in your heart, if you know that you're falling short, if you know that your priorities have gotten all turned upside down, that you've been living in fear and not in faith, that you've allowed the world to squeeze you into its mold, if you have felt like a failure because you've not kept your commitments, you have felt like a failure because it's February 6th and you've already broken every resolution you made on December 31st, God says, return to me. And I will return to you. But you say, how shall we return? And then Malachi says, the Lord says to them, will a man rob God? Yet you say, how are you? Yet you've been robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me and the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the window of heavens and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So God says to us, he says to the nation, return to me, and I will return to you. And they say, well, how shall we return to you? And then it seems like God changes the subject on them, but it's not really. He said, how shall we return? Well, was a man robbed God that you're robbing me? But how, you say, have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Now, it's, it's interesting here that the return here is is rooted in the sacrificial system and in the offerings. And that's been a major theme of this whole book, right? From the very beginning, there's been this idea that the priests are falling down on the job. The priests are saying things against God. They're not honoring God. They're not fearing God. The people are not honoring God. The people are not respecting God. They're not fearing his name. And the sacrificial system has become a mockery. And so God says to them, if you want to return to me, then you need to do what is right. You need to give me what is mine. You need to give me what is mine. Now, we know that the tithe literally means a tenth. It means a tenth. So he says you need to, in the tenths and in the offerings. And of course, the tithe and the offerings were a system of sacrifice and giving that were in the old economy under the old covenant. And it was to support the temple and the priesthood. It was from the tithes and the offerings that the priests actually got their sustenance. That many of the sacrifices, not all of them, some of them were wholly devoted to the Lord and wholly consumed. But many of them were divided between the Lord and the priest. The priests had their portion which is how they got their sustenance. 
In fact, some of the sacrifices were actually shared not only with the priest, but also with the offerer. And of course, when we talk about tithes, when we talk about offerings, we often wonder, like, how does this relate to us now in the new covenant? Now, there are some Christians who believe the tithe is the standard. In other words, we're supposed to give 10%. And then, of course, we talk about what does that look like? What does that mean? Is it 10% of your gross? Is it 10% of your net? And then there are all kinds of questions about how we apply that in the church. But it is interesting to me, and it has been noted by many scholars, that the tithe as a system was never commanded in the New Testament. It could have been. I mean, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians could have included it. It could have been included in the letter to the Philippians. God, Paul talks about giving in 2 Corinthians, but there's never any command, make sure you give your 10%. Why is that? Well, the priests in the old covenant had no earthly inheritance. They had no earthly land given to them, designated them, just like the other tribes did. The Levites had no tribe land given to them. Why was that? Because the Lord was their portion. Well, we've already observed that we're a royal priesthood. We're a holy priesthood. See, the issue isn't that Jesus wants 10%. Jesus wants 100%. He doesn't want 10%. He wants 100%. You see, if I'm a priest, if I'm a member of this royal priesthood, this holy priesthood, I have no earthly inheritance. The Lord is my portion. All that I have is literally, like in the old covenant, given to me for my sustenance, and it's the Lord's, just as I am the Lord's. The reason why Paul doesn't talk about it, the reason why Peter doesn't talk about it, it because is because is the expectation is that All that I have, all that I am, all that I own already belongs to the Lord. And it is my responsibility as a priest before the Lord to deal with that responsibility before him. Think about this, right? Let's take the 10% as a standard, right? And let's suppose that you are a a young family, you live in Elizabeth. You're a husband, a wife, and you have three kids, and you make $50,000 a year. And you think, how am I ever going to afford 10%? 5000 out of 50000 that's 10%. And if I do it before taxes, they take out another 25% between federal income, Social Security, uh, you know, Medicare, and all of a sudden... 
And it's like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Now you're someone who lives over in Mountain Ridge area and you make $500,000 a year. 10% is 50,000. Well, that gives you 450,000 left. It's both 10%, right? Oh, I gave my 10%. I'm good. G. Campbell Morgan writes, God always values the offering by what it costs the man and never its intrinsic worth. What does sacrifice reveal? Sacrilege is centered in offering God something which costs nothing because you think God is worth nothing. You see, that's why that's why, you know, giving, you know, saying, oh, this is the percent you should give. Why that is like mm, dangerous. Why? Because you check the box. I, I gave my 10%. I gave my 5%. I gave my 2%, whatever, right? I just checked the box. Jesus doesn't want 10%. He wants 100%. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't help me with determining what I should give. Well, I'm not supposed to help you determine what you're supposed to give. That's between you and God. But I will say this, God loves a cheerful giver. And I will also say this, give what you can, and then a little more. Give what you can, and then a little more. So for some of us, we can give a lot. There was a brother years ago. He's kind of like a legend in Tenafly Assembly. And uh, they actually named a part of the building after them, which is, from what I understand, kind of heretical among the brethren. But they did it anyway. Um, it was Wadham Hall, you know. And the reason why they named it after him was because he was such a testimony of God's giving. And, you know, he kind of had this mentality of, like, it's 100% for God. So he was a very, very, very wealthy man, a very wealthy man. And he was a 19th century believer. I mean, what would be modern day wealth? I don't know what it would translate to, but he gave 90% of it away. He lived on 10% of what he made and he lived very comfortably. Do you know Mark Zuckerberg lost $31 billion last week? I can tell you something. He, he, it didn't change his lifestyle because his net worth is over a hundred billion. It didn't change his lifestyle. It's digital anyway, right? What difference it make? But the point is that it's like, what does it cost us? Give what you can and a little more knowing that it's all the Lord's anyway. Your house, your car, your TV, your clothes, it's all his. Use it. Use it for him. See, what returning to the Lord means is giving God what is God's. When the people of Jesus' day wanted to kind of trap him in a technicality, they asked him the question about money. Should we give taxes? Should we pay the taxes to Caesar? And Jesus' response is, give me a coin. Show me a coin. Interesting. He didn't reach into his own pocket and grab a coin. He had to ask for a coin. Show me a coin. 
Whose image is on it? Caesar's. Well, render to Caesar that which is Caesar and render to God what that which is God's. And of course, when we think about it, right, here was a, here was a piece of metal with, that bore the image of Caesar that belonged to Caesar. God says to us, you're made in my image. Give me what is mine. Return to me means that I'm giving myself back to him. I'm going back to him. Lord, here I am. The whole mess, the whole thing. This is it. This is who it is, Lord. I'm coming back to you. Giving God what is God's. In their day, it meant taking a hard look at the sacrificial system and the tithes and the offers because it was representative of their heart attitude. But we're not in the old covenant. We're in the new covenant. And when Jesus was talking about the new covenant, he talked about people giving their all, forsaking it all to follow him. And of course, How many times have Christians misused these verses that if you bring it to the whole tithe into the storehouse, they will open, I will see if I will not open up for you windows of heaven and pour out your blessing until it overflows. And how many times Christians have used this verse? Look, just put $10 into the plate and God will bless you a hundredfold. It's not a magic formula. It's not an exchange rate. God isn't a fund manager. What he's saying to the people is that your life and the struggles you have now are indicative of the fact that you've drifted away. You want blessing in your life. You want to have, uh, you want to see prosperity. You want to see fruitfulness, right? You want to see all these things happen in your life. Then you give to me what is, what is mine. And I will open heaven and I will bless you. We are a spiritual people. We're not God's earthly people. He's not giving us a land. He's not giving us a territory. Our promise isn't about how much grain we produce or how much corn or how much wine. It's about the fruit of the spirit. It's about walking by faith. It's about having that peace with God, which passes all understanding. And God says, you return to me. You render to me what is mine. And you will have the fruit of the spirit. You will see that blessing of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness meekness, self-control. Because until you return to me, you can't bear my fruit. But if you do, you will be blessed. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us materially. I'm not saying that God doesn't turn around and, and show himself powerful on our behalf in material ways. Of course he does. Of course he does. The stories of Hudson Taylor and George Mueller and your life and my life are witness that God provides for his children, sometimes in miraculous ways, but he doesn't want us thinking in those terms. Like Jesus said, don't worry about your life. Your father's got that covered. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Return, return to me, and I will return to you. In verse 13, he goes on to say, the Lord says, your words have been arrogant against me. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept this charge and we've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed 
And not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Now, which person here has never thought in their heart, why bother serving the Lord? There is not a person in this room who's not had a moment in their life where because of circumstances or situations where they've questioned the, va- the value of being faithful. Or they've wondered whether or not it was worth it. Was it worth missing the party? Was it worth breaking up that, re- breaking off that relationship? Was it worth obeying God and staying pure and staying clean? Was it worth it? There's not a person who walks with God for any length of time who's not confronted by the same temptation. And when God says, you have spoken arrogantly against me, you've said harsh things against me. How many times have we said harsh things against him? God, life's not fair. This is not fair. Or worse, this is not right. And we've said those to the one who's the judge of all the earth, who always does what is right. There's a story that I came across about a missionary couple returning home from the foreign field in Africa. They were broke and physically broken. They happened to be on the same ship that was carrying Teddy Roosevelt, the president of the United States, back from an African hunting adventure. And on board the ship, he was the celebrity. He was wined and dined and everybody paid attention to him and he was just the star. And there was this little missionary couple, unknown, unappreciated. And when they got to the dock and they disembarked, there was all the press and all the fanfare for Teddy Roosevelt as he disembarked from that ship and everybody celebrating his return and his arrival. And the missionary couple got off the ship and there was no one there to greet them. Not one person from their church, not one person from their community. They shuffled off that ship with no pension, no obvious means of support, broken health, and found a flat on the east side to hopefully get a job to work. And that night, the husband just broke down and said to his wife, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And his wife, being the good wife that she was, said, honey, you should go talk to the Lord about this. And he goes, we came home, and there was no one there to greet us. There was no one there to welcome us. We were unknown, unappreciated. Honey, you need to go talk to the Lord. And so he went into his bedroom, and there he knelt, and he prayed for quite a while. And he came out of his bedroom, and she said to him, so, honey, what happened? He said, it's settled between me and the Lord. It's good. She goes, how? Why? As I prayed, it was as if the Lord put his hand on me and said, you're not home yet. It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it 
that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. For every one of us here who have ever thought those words, that we've been unappreciated, that we've done what we've done unknown, we're not home yet. And the Lord says, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. Those who spoke together about him, who spoke together, it's as almost as if the people the Lord is talking about are the people who at one moment were saying, oh, what's the point? And then Malachi's message reaches them and they turn around and they return to the Lord and they say, yeah, it is worthy to worship. It is worth serving him. It is worth going about mourning before the Lord. It is worth sacrificing. It is worth giving him all. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. He goes on to say, they will be mine, and I will deliver them. They recite the truth to one another. They remind each other, and they speak to one another. Even as we are exhorted in the scriptures to speak the truth in love, even as we are exhorted to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, even as we are told to confess our faults and our trespasses to one another, that we are going to have a ministry with one another of encouragement and building one another up. And as we do that in fear of the Lord, in honor of his name, the Lord pays attention. The Lord pays attention. Return. Recite. Remember. So you will distinguish again between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed. And the day is coming, will set them ablaze, says the Lord. So it'll be that then neither root nor branch will be left. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances, which I commanded before him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Remember, the day is coming, the day of the Lord, a terrible day, a day of judgment, a day of wrath. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. Remember the covenant. Remember the covenant. And then we find in verse 2, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Remember the covenant. God tells the Old Testament people, remember the covenant that I gave you at Horeb. And we, a little while ago, were reminded that we're supposed to remember the new covenant that's in his blood. 
that there is an application here, a reminder for us to remember the covenant. And think about this. Think about this. This is the last reference to the Messiah in the Old Covenant. This is the very last reference, the very last prophetic utterance of the Messiah in the Old Testament. But the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Think about in the Old Covenant, the first reference to the Messiah. The first reference was to a seed. As God spoke to the serpent, Satan incarnate, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. The very first reference of the Messiah is to a seed, but the last reference is to a son. The first reference speaks about suffering. For how would the Messiah crush the serpent's head but by being pierced by that serpent? And it reminds us of what the writer of the Hebrews said, that by death he would destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death have been held in bondage for all their lives. The first reference is about suffering. The last reference is about healing. The first reference is about a savior coming. The last reference is about a judge. The first reference is about the first coming. And the last reference is about the second coming. The sun will rise with healing in its wings. As Jim got up this morning and reminded us of that passage in Corinthians, you break this bread, you drink this cup to show forth the Lord's death till he comes. Till he comes. And of course, there's a lot about the Lord's coming that we could spend time unpacking. But the reality is, is that he is coming. He is coming. And when he comes, he's not going to come in a way that it, that the way the word seed implies something insignificant, something small, something tiny, something that has potential, but not yet realized, but a sun rising, a sun rising, blazing across the horizon as the darkness gives way to light and we see it coming and everyone sees it. It's not something that, oh, if I'm just standing here, I got a glimpse of it. It doesn't matter where you are on that horizon. You see the sun rising. It affects everyone who sees it. And for those who know him, it rises with healing in its wings. And you see when the first promise was given, it spoke of the Messiah crushing the head of the serpent. But the second, the last reference speaks of the ultimate triumph of all God's people. Because what does it say? And he says, you will trample the wicked under your feet and they will be like ashes to you. And what began as a seed 
is now blossomed into an entire tree. And all of its fruit is God's children saved by grace who experience the triumph of his return. Return, recite, remember. Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. The messenger came. John the Baptist came out of the wilderness, said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is coming, the baptizer said, and he came. At some point in the future, another will arise in the same spirit and power of Elijah, and he will tell the peoples of earth, prepare ye the way of the Lord, for the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming. But until then, we're not home. We still drift. We still stumble. We still fall. And we look for the day when the sun will rise with healing in his wings. But he heals us now too, doesn't he? You know, the other beautiful picture of Jesus, it's not just the sun rising, it's the day star. The morning star. And the thing about the morning star is that it's most visible in the darkest of night. It stands out the most brilliant. When we return, we find him the same yesterday, today, and forever. O Savior Christ, our woes dispel, for some are sick and some are sad, and some have never loved you well, and some have lost the love they had. And some have found the world is vain, yet from the world they break not free. And some have friends who give them pain, yet not have sought a friend in thee. And none, O Lord, have perfect rest, for none are wholly free from sin. And they who fain would serve you best are conscious most of wrong within. O Savior Christ, you too are man. You have been troubled Tempted, tried, your kind but searching glance can scan the very wounds that shame would hide. Your touch has still its ancient power. No word from you can fruitless fall here in this solemn morning hour. And in your mercy, heal us all. Our God and our Father, as we bring to close this time together this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us that you are the same, that we can come back to you again. We can say again the things that we once said. We can renew. We can return because you are faithful and gracious. Prone to wander, Lord, 
I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Yet thou, Lord, hast deigned to seal it with your spirit from above. This wandering heart. And so, Father, as we go forth into this week, may we renew our commitment to you. May we refresh in our minds the things you've done for us. May we remember the covenant of your blood shed for us. Might we recite those things to ourselves and to others that we know are true. And might we continually return to you. You, Lord Jesus, who are the son of righteousness, whose rays bring healing. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.